Welcome back to the Revelation on Man podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you Revelation from the Bible. I'm your host, Justin D. Myers, and thank you for joining me today. Once again, another solo episode, uh, a little bit of worldly news. As everyone has probably, you've heard by now, the Queen has gone to rest with the Lord, and that would be the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, and they've already toyed with calling her great, which I believe Queen Elizabeth the Great would be a fitting title for her. Um, not really a big, uh, you know, royalty follower kind of person. I'm born and raised in America, so I, I never really got on to uh, following the royalty. But as far as royals go, I think Queen Elizabeth was one of the only royals that I actually kind of liked and I, you know, looked up to and thought, you know, that's that's kind of how I think a queen should act. And um, come to find out, I didn't even know this until we all these podcasts have been mentioning her is that she was a very devout Christian and well, Catholic more likely. And, uh, she took her vocation as queen as, as something, you know, given by God. And I think that's part of the reason why she was blessed with such a long reign. And, you know, she was such a beloved figure, even in other places around the world, not just England. Uh, so we, I say, you know, if you didn't get a chance to meet her and you're in Christ, you, there's still a chance you'll get to meet her in heaven because I'm more than sure she's resting in glory in, in the temple of God. And we can all look forward to seeing her someday, if that's the case. So that's about all the worldly news I have. Continuing on, last episode was Isaiah 5, and that was kind of a love poem parable thing where Isaiah was... Uh, really kind of bringing out the things that, you know, Jerusalem was doing incorrectly and, and pointing to him and saying, you know, you're going to be ruined because of this. And through that uh, chapter, we got to learn about how to stand strong in the faith, even when the world is, you know, turning in the wrong way and heading in a very dark path, or as I said, calling good evil and evil good. And we, we really seen how, that applied a lot today, and it's kind of interesting always to see when the Bible applies a lot today. I always find it interesting. Uh, today, we will be going, if you've looked at the the title, we're going into Isaiah 6. Now, this is one of my favorite chapters of Isaiah, and part of the reason why I wanted to do Isaiah so, so badly is because if you've been with us since the beginning, you know that as Revelation on demand, we like to search into the more spiritual side of things, you know, talk about demons and and demons and angels and all the spiritual sort of things that go on. And of course, we started off in Revelation, which is just a lot of imagery talking about the end of the world and the spiritual world colliding with the physical world. And we, we really do enjoy talking about that subject on this podcast. And that's part of the reason why we do this podcast. So today's episode is very much in line with our, you know, modus operandi. It is uh, Isaiah's vision, his kind of a uh, meeting with God where he got his job. So this is a chapter that I'm quite excited to do, and hopefully you are excited to get into it as me. We'll see that this is a turning point in how Isaiah represents God the rest of the book. He goes from kind of just being a representative of God to being you know, commissioned by God for this job, and he actually goes out. So he may not have been called a, uh, as a prophet initially, but this, this, kind of, this is the scene where we see Isaiah get his calling. 
and this vision God gave Isaiah of the throne room in God. There's a lot of, there's, excuse me, this vision God gave Isaiah is of the throne room, you know, of the one in heaven and the temple. So it kind of combines the two. There's a lot of spiritual imagery to cover, especially in this first couple lines. So uh, we're going to really dig into that as we go through this chapter. Now, it's a very short chapter, and it's a very, very colorful, um, very rich, rich text here. So there's a lot to go over, even though it's only 13 lines here. And like I said, it's really front-heavy. There's a lot that we need to talk about right here in these first couple sentences. So we'll get into that. Starting Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we know King Uzziah, Uzziah, excuse me, died around 740 BC. So this would have been about 700 years before Christ came, and this is the time that marks kind of the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. And his death marked the end of an era in Judean dominance. And of course, at this point, Assyria is once again on the rise, as we know, studying older or studying the old testament we see often that assyria is one of these big empires that comes up and often acts as one of these tools to <clears throat> to come against jerusalem especially when they're not acting in accordance they also are one of the the tools that you know god uses to show that you know the jews are or jerusalem or excuse me judea is actually following Christ or following God that they can actually repel Assyria at times. But right now this is the mark of Judea becoming the underdog and Assyria once again coming to power. When I when I read this it really makes me wonder what it's like to be to live in a country blessed by God that is failing in its commitments to God is decaying into a state that is too weak to maintain its sovereignty. It's only a little facetious, I know. I'm thinking, you know, America was this great country that was blessed by God, and we founded it in accordance with the values we see in the Bible. And much of the founding, founding fathers had a faith of some sort, especially towards God, the one true God. And it's one of those things where... 270 some odd years later, I'm born into this, this country. It's a wonderful country, as we talked about last time, where we need to realize how privileged we are to be in this country. But just to see it starting to fall apart and, and turning away from God, that, that hurts. And I know I'm an ex-atheist. I was in there with it. You know, I was not following God when I first, you know, the beginning part of my life. And just to see a country who was blessed by God to turn away from the God they chose to serve and just to see how it's undoing itself because of it. It's, it's really, it's really heartbreaking to be honest. 
so we hear Isaiah talk about the temple in the throne room. So he's very much trying to tie the two. So he is, he was at a point when the temple was actually built. This was the temple that was supposed to be the physical location where God dwells on earth. Now, a lot of this imagery, we'll see that it goes from talking about how this, the bottom of the, the temple is what looks like the earthly temple. And then as you go through, instead of there being a ceiling where where the actual temple would be, it goes into the heavenly temple. So we, we see that he's, his vision is very much tying the two together as in God is in this place. One thing we got to think about is that kings were often, they had these processions, excuse me, to be enthroned where they would, you know, come back to their kingdom, come back to their throne room. And very much in the same way, Israel had one whenever they brought the ark back to the temple or even to the tabernacle before there was always this procession. And there was, there's many of these processions that are described in the Bible, such as when David brought the ark into the temple. He, he celebrated this, this grand, we've talked about it actually before this grand, you know, gesture where he's, he's got this basically a parade that's bringing in the, the ark back to the, the temple, which would be the throne room, which would be where God is enthroned. And Isaiah has always, and will continue as we continue through all the chapters he continues to say that Yahweh is the only being worth worthy of being exalted, of being brought to this high place, of being given this this ultimate authority, this ultimate you know uh, praise, this ultimate worship. Now, the train of his robe. Uh, there's some other translations that talk about like the hem of his robe and stuff like that, but this is the very bottom of his robe, and that's all Isaiah can see, and it's it's filling the temple space, you know, the the place where the the ark would be and so he sees that you know the very bottom of this of the of god's robe is filling this temple area so when i, I like to think of this uh, when if you've ever watched hercules the animated one where the young hercules who's hasn't become a hero yet he goes into the temple of zeus and you know he's as big as the statue of zeus's toe like this is like even more of a size difference than that. Like we're not even seeing his toe. We're just seeing the bottom of his robe. And of course the ark was kind of known as the footstool. So this would be kind of the place where God would rest his feet. You know, as he sits in his heavenly throne room, he rests his feet on the ark, which would be in the temple. So very much, this is a, a massive uh, size difference that we're talking about. And of course, it's it's showing it never really describes how god looks it's just he's this massive being that isaiah can't fully make out you know and just you know this this adds to the to isaiah's you know all over god and just what we're about to see how he he reacts to this which just brings him to his knees and now we get to the seraphim and of course i always enjoy talking about the seraphim which are the highest order of angels. Then would be the cherubim and then the ophanim or ophanim, something like that. The wheels, they are the, the ones that, so this is the highest ranking set of angels. And of course the seraphim are the ones who serve God directly. Now they, the name seraphim in, in Hebrew is 
often translated as burning ones or serpents, burning serpents. So they, they're these shining uh, serpent-like figures. Of course, when I start to, to hear that, you know, winged serpents and stuff like that, this is my personal opinion that uh, the seraphim are actually dragons, six-winged dragons that, you know, of course, are the ones who serve God directly. And another thing that I think of is that Satan was one of these seraphim. He was one of these six-winged dragons that was one of the highest-ranking angels. And, of course, then he falls and takes a third of the angels with him. So it's just kind of one of those things. I like to think that uh, when when he was cast down, he lost some of his wings. Because in the angel hierarchy, the more wings that angels have, the more important or the higher the rank of the angel and that's just some interesting stuff to get into, but I definitely do like talking about the seraphim because I like dragons and they, in my mind, will always be dragons. And I can't wait to see if I'm right, you know, someday. So now they repeat holy three times. Um, if they're really repeating holy, I, they might be, but in, in uh, Hebrew to make the point of something to, you know, exclaim something, to make something they don't have, uh, you know, the, the kind of exclamation points we have or or the kind of uh, punctuation we have. So to make something uh, important, they would usually double up and they'd say something twice and they would that would be like an explanation or exclamation or, you know, this is very important. So when it repeats it three times, this is very uncommon for them. They would only repeat things twice normally if it was very important. So him writing it down three times, and we see this throughout the Bible constantly, whenever any of the angels are talking about God, it's always holy, holy, holy. And it's, it's like putting a finer explanation, a finer, you know, importance to it. Like he is truly the only, like most holy, the most high, the most set apart sort of being. And then one more thing in Hebrew the last part is often translated as the whole earth is full of his glory, but this also could be an invocation as well, where it's translated more like may the whole earth be filled with his glory, which would be talking more about the future tense. Uh, so it works as both. Uh, not necessarily sure which one is more correct, but it could also mean, you know, not only is it talking about, you know, the whole earth is filled with his glory as is, but it will be filled with his glory in the time to come. And that's the things that we've talked about in Revelation when God, you know, brings his presence down to earth and merges the spiritual and the physical worlds together. We shall continue on at verse four. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So, right off the bat, we see that, you know, the, the voices of the angels are shaking the doorposts and thresholds. So this is, again, talking about that area where he's seeing the temple reaching into the heavenly throne room. So the area that he's at the level he's at those the physical building the temple is shaking and you know being shook apart by these beings it's almost like the the physical temple is unable to withhold the power of these beings which would be you know the temple is built of these giant slabs of you know 
granite and marble stones, like these big stones, which would not be shook very easily. And of course, I'm not sure if there's very much tectonic movement. I'm sure there's, there's quite a bit in Israel, but I'm not sure on that. You'd have to correct me. So this is where Isaiah realizes like he's in potentially a lot of trouble. So the seraphim, as it said, they had to cover their heads and their bodies with four of their wings and then fly with the other two. So these are the most holy beings, right? These are the, the servants of God. If they have to shield their faces and their bodies from the, you know, the radiance of God, like, and they are like the most holy beings created, like, what is this poor man, Isaiah, you know, he is a servant of God, of course, but he's not, you know, he's not, as he says, he's a man of unclean lips and he lives among people of unclean lips. Like he's not fit to be in the presence of the ultimate good. That is God. Then likewise, appearing or being unprepared improperly or appearing improperly being unprepared before a king was often uh, often would lead to someone's death. So if you're rude or improper in front of a king when they called you to him, it would often lead to your death. And of course, this is something that Isaiah is, is worried about. He's like, I'm not ready for this. I haven't had the proper sacrifices to cleanse me. I'm not. And, you know, I've lived among these people who are doing like everything, doing everything except following God like they should. And I could be destroyed right now. And this is something that I understand very well, you know, like, you know, God, I'm not, a, I'm not a perfect man. I'm not a sinless man. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I know, not, I'm not perfect. I can't be in your presence, you know, being in the presence of God, as we've talked about would, would literally destroy any sin. So I would imagine if we as sinful creatures were allowed to be in the presence of God, which is often why God, you know, sh- or sh- shields himself from us that, uh, if we were to go into his presence, the process of us, of the sin being, you know, blasted away basically because of his radiance, because of his true goodness, it would uh, be very painful and probably be the death of anybody. So, but as we know that Isaiah didn't know because Christ was, was, he was before Christ's time. If we are in Christ, we don't have to worry about this as Jesus is our covering that washes us white as pure as white as snow, it purifies us for this meeting with the King of all creation. So he is the sacrifice that wipes us clean, that takes away all of our sin. And then we know if we are in Christ that we don't have to worry about being, you know, dying in this way that Isaiah is worried about right now. Now, luckily God's going to take care of that and, you know, kind of put Isaiah's anxiety to rest here as we continue. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, I find it really interesting that the seraphim can hold on to this coal after having needed to use tongs to pull it out from the altar. So, like... Has it cooled enough that the seraphim can hold it? And then, of course, he does the the next crazy thing. He flies up to Isaiah and just, like, touches it to his lips. And, of course, 
if burning coal, this, you know, terrifying creature flying up to you with it. Like I could only imagine that he was scared, really scared. Like, Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm done for, you know, like here we have this, this being coming at you with this glowing hot coal. And then it touches his lips and it removes Isaiah's sin and he's purified. So he can be in the presence of the Lord and live to tell about it. Like this was the symbol of God atoning for Isaiah's sins. You know, he, he, he has the ability to remove sins at will. Now, atonement at the time when Isaiah was, you know, living, that was done during the, the temple time, was done by a ritual of blood sacrifice in exchange of an innocent animal's life would cover the sins that you have committed, and that would make atone for you. And then, of course, once a year, uh, you know, the, the priests would go in and make atonement and cleansing and all this other stuff that would have this ritual that would take all the sin away from everybody, right? So we see here that God is showing him that he can extend this mercy and make atonement with whoever he wants, whenever he wants. And of course, this is all foreshadowing to when he sends the Messiah down to make the ultimate atonement, you know, to give us the option to be atoned for. And with this, this cleansing, Isaiah is now ready to receive the divine message from God. As we hear, continuing on in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, here am I, ah, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So this isn't the only scene where we see God in the throne room asking a question that he already knows the answer to. So we see that he's talking to the ones present in the throne room, which could be the divine council. It could just be he's talking to the seraphim, or he could be talking to, uh, you know, Isaiah, basically asking him a rhetorical question. Like, I know you're going to tell me you're going to go do it. So I'm just going to ask the question anyways, because you're probably still, you know, shaking in your boots because of what just happened, you know, and I think that was a proper response from Isaiah, you know, and here we see Isaiah is just like, you know, here. I'm willing to go. And that's, that's all God really asks of us is that we're willing to do what he asks us to do. And then of course, Isaiah responded and he receives his mission, which is the way prophets truly receive their mission. They receive it directly from God. They get, they get a word from God. They get a vision from God. They get this calling from God to go out and bring whatever message it is. And of course that message is directly from God himself. And Isaiah's mission is a unique one. He is to go out and make sure the people do not repent and avoid the punishment. Like his mission is to go and make sure that Israel doesn't get out of the punishment they're about to come. They're about to get. Now, this is where Calvinists like to point and say, see, God's God's the one who decides who's saved and who isn't. Like he he decided that these people will not repent, so they they would not. But then I have to ask, why is it that God has to send 
Isaiah to make sure that this happens. Like, I believe that unlike Nineveh, where, you know, God sends Jonah to get them to repent, God knew if I send someone, Nineveh will repent. So go Jonah. I think in the same way, God knows that Jerusalem is at a stage where they have hardened themselves so much that not very few of them are actually going to listen if Isaiah comes down and says, repent, repent and turn to God, you know, like, so it doesn't matter if Isaiah goes down and tells them to repent, 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 or if he says, go on, continue what you're doing, you know, you're, you're going to be destroyed anyways. I think it doesn't matter exactly how Isaiah goes about this. He just has to go. And even though it doesn't matter what he's doing, he needs to go and bring this message to Israel. So I think Israel at this point has done exactly what Pharaoh had done back in the time of Israel leaving Egypt, where Pharaoh had already hardened his heart against God. So there was nothing that Moses could do to make him change his mind. I think very much in the same way, there's nothing Isaiah can do. All Isaiah can do is go and save the very few remnant of Israel that God will use to rebuild his kingdom to bring around the Messiah. And I think that's that's exactly what Isaiah's job is to do here. Continuing on at verse 11, Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the tabernacle, the tabernacle, and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. So we see that Isaiah is truly dismayed about this. Like he's like, how long? Like what? Why is this? You know, like he here he's hoping like, oh, maybe I can go get you know, Jerusalem to turn around. Like, as we've seen in the, the previous chapter, he's like, you guys need to stop doing this. Like you guys need to knock this off. You're, you're heading towards ruin. Like he was this warning prophet, this warning alarm going like, Hey, stop doing this. So Isaiah, when he's told like, Hey, you know, don't stop them. Like you're going to go save the few where I'll actually listen, but don't save Jerusalem. Like they're getting what they deserve at this point. And Isaiah is just you know, heartbroken over this. He loves his country. He loves his God, you know, and he's very much that man who put God first country. And then he believes in himself and he's just dismayed by this news. And we see that he he's hurting. And of course God gives even more, you know, even more, vicious language here where he's saying there'll be nothing left. It'll be a wasteland. Everything will be ruined. Everything will be left to the, to destruction and the people will be driven off into exile and destruction and exile are instruments of God's judgment. We see throughout the Bible. So he's, he's bringing both down on, on Jerusalem at this point because they have truly turned away from God in a way that he just cannot, he cannot stand and he will not stand for and then it's also talking about how there's a tenth left, even if there's a tenth left, those who survive and he will rebuild from them, but they will continue to suffer this judgment because the, their, their families, their people who they 
live with, the people that they serve with, the people that they, they know on day to day, they have so fallen far from God. And of course, these people have too. So the very few that will be left over may actually turn around and, and seek repentance. And of course, God will eventually bring around as we hear the stump, and we will get into this more as we cover chapter 11, where this is the foreshadowing, the stump of Jesse, a shoot will grow out of the stump of Jesse. And this is, of course, is referring to how the Messiah comes around from the destruction of Jerusalem at this point. Of course, we're still 750 years away from Jesus's time, basically. So this is going to be a long process where as we see you know we talked in daniel which was you know another two or three hundred years later and we see that jerusalem is still under assyrian control and just being destroyed by them and abused by them over this time and of course god will raise up from the seed of jesse or the stump of jesse the shoot that will become the savior for all of humanity so our takeaway for today there are other forces at work in the world other than the simply natural ones with god's protection we do not need to worry about facing them in christ we also are made clean enough to appear before god and when the time comes we'll be able to meet him face to face yeah with that heavy note, I really appreciate everyone who's listening. I really like it. Like to see that our numbers keep going up. Uh, thank you so much for sticking with us through this. Uh, you know, sticking with me through this. I really appreciate you guys. Keep listening. You know, share this with people you know, especially if you find it helpful. And if there's ever anything that you want to tell us, please, please feel free to reach out. You know, on Facebook, our email, anywhere. Anywhere you see Revelation on demand, you can message us directly, and uh, we'll hear it. We'll get to it. Thank you for listening to Revelation on Demand podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch podcasts from. Please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. This is a completely private venture, and we receive no funding from any sources. Any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact me at revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless, and see you next time.